0: This podcast is supported by Oliver White. Oliver White educators, coaches, and mentors can help bring your company to the level of Class A business excellence because they have done it themselves at their own companies. All of our principals have extensive first-hand experience in operating and managing business processes to the highest standard. We don't just tell you how to improve your business processes. We give you the knowledge to make it happen. You can find Oliver White online at www.oliverwhite, that's W I G H T, dash americas.com, or by calling 800 258 3862. And now, on to the podcast. conventional thinking in the business world doesn't work anymore time to rewire the organizational brain hi everybody i'm bob bowman managing editor of supply chain brain and this is the supply chain brain podcast The human brain remains a mystery in so many ways. We struggle to understand how we make decisions, how we learn, how we can work well with others. When it comes to basic knowledge of the brain, we don't even know what thinking is. My guest today is an expert in artificial intelligence and cognitive science. He is Michael Vaughn, CEO and Managing Director of The Regis Company. He's written a new book called The Thinking Effect. Rethinking Thinking to Create Great Leaders and the New Value Worker. Michael joins us to explain how an understanding of neuroscience, and what he calls neural leadership, can help both individuals and businesses to break the patterns of conventional thinking. In the process, they can dramatically change the way in which people learn and lead. Think of the organization as one big brain. So here is my conversation with Michael Vaughn. Michael Vaughn, welcome to the program.
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: You've had an extensive background, as I understand it, in artificial intelligence. For years, for 50 years, we've been told that artificial intelligence is just around the corner. Uh, the great uh, computer scientist Alan Turing predicted that by the year 2000, we'd have thinking machines. Uh, and it always seems to be about 20, 10 or 20 years ahead just over the horizon when this science is going to realize itself. I'm just wondering, in your opinion, is is AI, as has been predicted by researchers up to this point, a failure?
1: Wow, uh, you know, I don't think I would say it's a failure. I think it certainly has helped us gain insights into other parts of, uh, like, for example, neuroscience, understanding the brain, understanding learning. And so it certainly has made significant uh, contributions in those areas. As far as having a thinking machine, yeah, I think we're still way off from uh, actually having a machine that uh, can think for us.
0: Do we understand what thinking really is?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Uh, Even even with all the great breakthroughs we've had in neuroscience, uh, especially in the last 10 years, uh, with uh, new technologies where we can monitor the brain and actually, if you will, look look into thoughts, if you will, at the cell level. Um, I still think we're really far off really understanding what thinking really is. And, and quite frankly, I think that'll be the difficulty in getting computers to think.
0: Yeah, it is. Because we'll
1: never know if they're there or not.
0: And it seems to me that some of the so-called victories uh, – haven't really achieved that goal. You know, we wonder if a machine that can win at chess or Jeopardy is really thinking, or is it just applying brute force in terms of the knowledge that it has at its command?
1: Yeah, a lot of those are um, providing, uh, I guess, like you're saying, brute force. That's why they need such uh, good computing power behind it. Um, but we are starting to see some breakthroughs in that some of the new algorithms are actually learning. And now, when I'm saying learning, it's really learning very simple types of tasks. Um, I remember when I was in college and we were uh, studying AI. You know, the very first thing that uh, we built is a printer. If you remember the old dot matrix printers, um, we actually took one apart and put a pole inside the printer head, and then taught the machine how to balance the pole, much like you would put a pole in your hand and balance it and you would self-correct, you know, to jump underneath the pole to make it stand upright, we were able to teach a printer to do that. Now, granted, that uh, is pretty simplistic learning, but it was uh, somewhat of a breakthrough.
0: I guess it counts as something. What is a neural network? Could you define that term for me?
1: Yeah, neural network, um, basically, it's in AI, it's really our representation of how we view the synapses and the cell bodies and everything in connecting within our brains, and so at the most simple level, it's really uh, trying to represent cells firing, and based on those uh, cells firing together, they make some type of connection. Uh, so there's this Hebb's law that talks about cells that fire get fire together, wire together. So that whole idea is tried to be brought into AI where. We're trying to give the computer positive and negative reinforcement, which then kind of fires these types of behaviors and creates new behaviors.
0: Does it also have to do with the discovery that the brain is not really a CPU as we understand it? In other words, thinking doesn't take place in one part of the brain. The function is distributed over the entire brain, thereby giving rise to the concept of the neural network. Is that a correct assumption?
1: You know, absolutely. Uh, For a long time, there's been this thinking around left brain, right brain. And um, if you look at a lot of the most uh, recent research, especially over the last 10 years, it's really showing there's not uh, a left and right brain thinking is happening throughout uh, all parts of the brain. And um, that's what makes it so darn complicated to really understand because we can't just narrow it down to one part
0: yeah uh, we were talking a moment ago about the idea of let's say let's say uh, iBM 's old deep blue computer that that beat uh, our greatest chess master uh, in in chess. The idea was that it used brute force in order to analyze all the possible moves and i and I'm wondering if this ties into your idea of trying to distinguish between what to think versus how to think. In other words, the first part is simply that brute force element and the second part is the more creative approach to what thinking is all about. Would that also be kind of along the lines of what you're thinking on this?
1: You know, absolutely. You know, if you think about it from a supply chain concept and uh, you think about the old MIT beer game um, and when that first came out, uh, though it was a very simple model of a supply chain, it really uh, triggered a lot of um, issues and thinking from the human dynamics uh, point of view. And now today, you know, things are significantly more complex and we have technology that kind of addressed some of the problems that we saw in the beer game. But the bottom line is the human dynamics still exist throughout the supply chain. And so you know, a lot of times what organizations do when they see a problem, they'll create another process, another procedure, which is essentially saying in this situation, this is what you need to do. In this situation, this is what you need to do. The problem with that is we're teaching people what to think in a very specific situation. And today, um, with things changing so quickly, you can't document all those situations. And we really need to be educating um, a great deal of the workforce on really on how to think in different situations so they can adapt their thinking as things evolve and new situations emerge.
0: Yeah, it seems like a large part of AI, classic AI, involves the creation of these so-called expert systems, which really boil down to nothing more than just having so much information at their fingertips that they just draw on what's they're programmed to, to know, quote-unquote, and not how to approach unfamiliar or unusual or creative types of situations such as you just described.
1: You know, that's a great point. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons expert systems haven't taken off as much as we hoped they would have uh, when we first came up with those ideas a long, long time ago. And I think the bottom line is because if you don't know what to type in and you don't know how to ask the question properly, it's not very good at giving you um, very good insight to the situation. And then once the situation changes, it's not really learning. And so um, it could often give you the wrong uh, information for the situation, which is, as we all know, um, very bad.
0: Yeah. Now you're talking here. Uh, you, you, your book, The Thinking Effect, uh, is about organizational behavior. It's about leadership. It's about decision making and creativity. And it's almost as if you're kind of treating the organization itself as a metaphorical brain. Uh, would that be too much of a leap? To uh, to get, that's the feeling I got from from reading it.
1: No, that's a great insight, and actually makes me excited that you saw that because that that is really uh, kind of the goal of the book. There is not look at the organization a bunch of silos and individual parts, but look at it more systemic. Where, yeah, as we see in the brain, uh, when you make a change in one area, it's going to have impacts in the other parts of the brain, and that's the same thing in organization. You know, you push against one part of the system, it's going to have some positive-negative parts uh, effects on another part of the system.
0: Yeah. So it's really interesting that, that you seem to have taken uh, the study of AI and applied it to teach us about organizational behavior and decision-making. But I'm wondering, let's start with, why don't traditional approaches to training and development in organizations work?
1: Yeah, you know, I think if you look at our education system holistically and you step back and say... You know, what is it really designed for? Uh, It's really designed to teach people what to think so they can get in there and get a job. I mean, if you think back in the industrial era, we needed people to get into the workforce and and do their job and, and do it correctly. And so it worked then. But we still have the same educational system, even after the concept of the knowledge worker. And what we're now talking about is a concept we call the value worker, someone that really is taking a big picture view of the entire system and is able to quickly unlearn, relearn uh, new types of skills, uh, essentially adapting to kind of new situations. And our current education system is not prepared to develop those types of thinkers. It's really prepared just to teach people what to think.
0: Even beyond that, it seems like our entire culture is kind of formed around the need to identify measurable results, whether it's test scores in school, whether it's a net profit or stock price in business. I mean, that would seem to be a pretty hard paradigm to shake considering how just how it seems to inform everything we do.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Um, measurement uh, is a big part of uh learning. Um, sometimes it's really helpful, but oftentimes it is really detrimental. Um, there's this whole concept uh, there's called U-shaped learning, which basically means as you learn something, your mental model often breaks down. And if you were to be measured during that point in time, uh, you're going to do poorly. Uh, but what's really happening at your brain level is, is that you're reconstructing new ideas and new insights based on the new information you've learned. And if you were to uh, wait a week when you finally get that insight of how it all comes together, and you measure someone there, uh, you would have significantly improved results. So that's the problem with measurement. But at the same time, we do we do need the, that data.
0: Yeah, let's be clear here. You're not rejecting the idea out of hand of the need to measure results. You're saying we need to supplement that with with something more.
1: Absolutely. I, I think a lot of the way we're doing measurements is really measuring kind of, uh, do you know it or you don't know it? I think what we should be measuring is how do people approach problems and how do they approach situations and measure more from a behavioral uh, standpoint and not just from a retention standpoint.
0: We're always going to bump up against the word creativity in a discussion like this. What is your definition of creativity?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of different definitions, but I think the best one for me from a business perspective is individuals that can come up with different courses of action, different options um, that could be for a strategy, for new products, or for just improving a process. And so that's that's where I see creativity in context of a business world, Uh, not necessarily um, from an artist standpoint, but really what are certain things that they could bring to the table that could make a difference in that organization.
0: I'm glad you didn't use the word thinking out of the box or that phrase because that seems to be the least creative phrase in business today. So many people claim to be thinking out of the box, and by the very nature of them using the word suggests they're not.
1: That's a great point.
0: I want to take a moment to tell you about Oliver White. For more than 40 years, companies have turned to Oliver White for our practical experience. Oliver White, educators, coaches, and mentors can help bring your company to the level of Class A business excellence because they've done it themselves in their own companies. All of our principals have first-hand experience in operating and managing business processes to the highest standards. We don't just tell you how to improve business processes. We give you the knowledge to make it happen. Our unique approach is proven to work successfully. We transfer our extensive knowledge to you as you strive to operate your business more effectively by optimizing your supply chains. We provide detailed knowledge of best practices, show you how to implement them, coach you on ways to manage challenges, and mentor you to build competencies. After working with Oliver White, your company will be more competitive, responsive, and profitable. Find Oliver White online at www.oliverwhite.com W I G H T dash Americas dot com, or by calling eight hundred two five eight three eight six two. And now, back to the podcast. And yet, it's it's such a hard thing to get your arms around. Why don't you talk about some of the. Barriers out there to to creativity in an organization and to kind of breaking free of some of these old paradigms. You mentioned first bias, which seems to be a tremendous wall to get over. Can we ever really defeat bias?
1: No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, at least, uh, at least not based on our current understanding. Bias seems to be very deep at our unconscious level, and oftentimes we don't even know we're applying it. And so I don't think the idea is to get rid of bias. It's mainly to be able to suspend your judgment long enough to hear a different perspective so you just don't get locked into always doing the same thing over and over.
0: I, I take it you you recommend some training exercises or some approaches that can help us to get around the uh, the problem of a bias.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of great research. I think uh, some of the breakthroughs recently have been in mindfulness uh, type of Practice where, um, for example, you know, I, I was driving to uh, uh, work a few weeks ago and someone cut me off. And uh, the first thing that happened is that obviously I obviously got deeply frustrated with them and, you know, thought in my mind a bunch of things I like to say to them. Uh, but at the same time, then I said, gee, I, I teach this stuff. I, I should actually be a little better than this. So I kind of just calmed down for a second and said, okay, how can I look at this a little bit differently? Perhaps they're, you know, need to get to the hospital, perhaps they're late for the airport. Uh, You know, so they have an emergency. And just by stopping my judgment, just even momentarily and taking on a new perspective, was just enough for helping me just change my own attitude about the situation and not let it bring me down.
0: Because it seems like the worst kind of biases are the ones we don't even know we have. So how do we become aware of the fact that, that we have this kind of demon sitting on our shoulders all the time?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've been using, um, the the Regis company over the last 10 years, are business simulations, and these are uh, simulations that model uh, how the business works, uh, every aspect of it, including the supply chain and so forth. And what we've been doing is uh, placing employees in these simulations where they're making decisions about their own business, and it's a great place for them to surface uh, what we call their mental models and their bias uh, in real time because they've been thinking a certain way about the business for a long time, and oftentimes that's not an appropriate way to be thinking about the business any longer. And so it's not necessarily getting down to the bias level, but it is getting down to some of their flawed thinking.
0: But often when you try to address the question of bias, people feel threatened. They feel like you're somehow criticizing the core of what they are, and I guess you have to find a way to approach that in a diplomatic way that doesn't feel
1: threatening. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly can't tell people to change their thinking and you can't tell people that they're wrong. That'll obviously shut them down. So the only way that we found is that people have to generate their own insights about their bias and about their own blind spots and and uh, they have to kind of discover that uh for themselves and then obviously be motivated enough to potentially evolve it, change it or replace it.
0: Yeah. Other uh, barriers you talk about in your book, you talk about fear. Uh, which is I guess mm-hmm. an obvious one you talk about attention, could you describe what you mean by those by those phrases as they relate to uh to these barriers?
1: Yeah, sure, so if you think about attention and you know today there are just so many different devices and technologies and uh you know, information coming at us, and so um we 've really become a multitasking society, and if you look at uh um, The neuroscience behind this is our brains are not designed to multitask. We're designed to task switch. So that means we unload our current thought, load a new thought, and re-anchor to where we were. And now that process happens quickly. But uh, if you think about how often we do that in the matter of an hour, a matter uh, of uh, a couple hours, uh, it really wears down our mental resources. And so what we're finding is that um, instead of multitasking and trying to do multiple different task at hand, a better approach is to focus on what you need to get done, get that done, and then move to the next task. And people who can discipline themselves to do that are uh, proving to be uh, better performing, uh, have better engagement at the work, um, generally are just adding more value because they're able to focus on that.
0: You mean that I can't write an article, be in a business meeting, and check my email all at the same time?
1: Gosh, I wish we could, but uh, based on uh, how our brains are wired, I don't. I don't think you can do all those things well.
0: Here again, yeah. it seems like social training is telling us that we can, indeed, we must multitask. Uh, and yet, it really isn't a question of that. It's a, it, every second is an either or in terms of where your attention is 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 drawn, right?
1: You know it is, and I've even heard of uh, companies trying to interview for people who can multitask, and boy, that's just dangerous. Uh, you know that I think what they are really looking for is people who are more adaptable in how to think and who can properly think about a situation from different perspectives and I think they 're confusing that with uh, multitasking so uh, hopefully as more and re- more and more research gets out there, uh, organizations will change some of their hiring practices.
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about the word fear. We kind of addressed that a little bit on the bias side, but how do you create? A so-called fear-free atmosphere that gives employees kind of the feeling that they can say what they want and they can come up with new ideas without feeling threatened or being put down by management. Give me some ideas on how to create that environment.
1: Yeah, you know that's a it's a great uh, great question because I think organizations have been trying to do this for a long time, and and uh, it sounds so easy. It's like wow, let's just create a wonderful environment and you know always an open door and. Tell me what you think and, you know, we'll respond appropriately to it. And the bottom line, that just doesn't really happen. Uh, when we hear what people really want to say, often that shuts us down and creates even more fear and anxiety. So uh, bottom line, it's, it's hard to create a culture like that, but it is doable. We're starting to see that in organizations where and it's typically at division level, smaller t- parts of the organization, um, where it really has to um, be modeled by the executive team. But that requires them to take on a whole different attitude where they have to be more vulnerable and transparent. And that's very hard for leaders uh, to be that way because oftentimes they didn't get to where they are by being transparent and vulnerable. They've gotten there because they've pushed hard and put in the time and, and made some tough calls.
0: At one point in the book, you even draw back and say, I don't want to start sounding touchy-feely here, because it certainly can go into that territory. And then we can just range into all these buzzwords and buzz phrases dating back to the 1960s. And we could all put on love beads and everything would be fine. But that's not what you want to do here, right?
1: That's right, yeah. Um, the area uh, specifically that I was getting into was an area around awareness, and uh, it's something that I learned from some Jesuit priests uh, while traveling through India. And it was a way for them to kind of become aware of their fears, their anxieties, and their expectations in the moment, and to essentially take away their power from you. From you. And uh, it, But part part is trying to bring that into the business world, because it does feel so darn touchy-feely. And so what we've been trying to do is bring this into simulations, where they're making difficult choices about their business, and at the same time, they're becoming aware of their own emotions, actions, and reactions to one another. And uh, oftentimes, that uh, has to tie right back to their fears, and then they surface it themselves, essentially becoming aware of it. Um, and then we found that to be a really, really powerful tool for helping people um, develop awareness and uh, become a little more aware of their blind spots and how fear is impacting them in the workplace.
0: One of the key concepts in your book is that of neural leadership. Could you describe that term, please?
1: Yeah. You know, this is, uh, this is I see, as one of the probably going to be the fastest growing areas in neuroscience. Um, as we learn more about the brain and how it's wired and um, how it's social in nature and how we make decisions and so forth, um, it's going to significantly change how people lead. Uh, It's going to change how people interact with one another. It's going to change how people make decisions and how they spend their time. And so this whole area of neural leadership really is about uh, becoming more aware of how your own brain is wired and use that to your own benefits.
0: It almost seemed to me to be a contradiction in terms if neural is the same word we're using in the phrase neural network that describes a kind of a distributed function where there is no CPU, no center, and yet leadership implies that you do have to have some center where the decisions actually get made. So is there some danger that those two words might not play well together?
1: Well, that, that's a great insight. I honestly didn't uh, consider that. So I have to put some thought towards that, but, um, you know, top of mind, I think any good leader understands that, um, leader is not a, a center point. It's really is taking more of a systemic big picture point of view. And so, um, I'll have to think more about that. That's, that's a a a really great insight.
0: Yeah. So, a million years of evolution. Can you really help us to to rewire our brain, or is that just a little bit too ambitious a, a goal with regard to what you're what you're seeking here?
1: Yeah, if you um, look at an area called neuroplasticity, plasticity, um, it, uh, it's certainly been out there a little, about maybe over twenty years, but uh, it's gotten a lot of attention, probably the last five years. And the whole idea is that because of neuroplasticity, uh, essentially means from being a child or late in our adult years, your brain has the ability to change its structure and its uh, its function. And so that means basically you can rewire new behaviors and new uh, habits and so forth by putting your mind to it. And so because of this. Um, we are getting pretty excited about the ability to kind of change old behaviors and introduce new behaviors because of this area of neuroplasticity.
0: And then keep them going in an organization too. As leadership changes, as the organization goes on, as various trendy management concepts come and go, I guess the challenge becomes how to keep it going.
1: Yeah, yeah, it certainly does uh, become quite a problem. You know, one of the things that we've been focused on is this area uh, we call the core thinking practices. And the core thinking practices is basically a way to think about any problem or situation. And the reason we created these core thinking practices is because we saw that very problem. We put people into training. They go through these simulations, have amazing insights about the behavior and things that they need to change. But then they go back to the workplace, hit by all the noise and demands, and they would uh, go back to their old behaviors. So we needed to figure out how do we equip people with a way that they can continue to develop and, and almost rethink how they're learning uh, outside of the classroom.
0: Is this being taught in the business schools?
1: Uh, it is not. No, this is something that uh, we just introduced over a year ago and is now just getting traction in large, uh, corporations, but, uh, it has not made it, uh, made it into the, um, business uh, schools yet.
0: Well, the book is the thinking effect, rethinking thinking to create great leaders and the new value worker, uh, Nicholas Breeley publishing. I will link to the book in our show notes, but, uh, Michael Vaughn, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today.
1: I really enjoyed this too. So thank you so much.
0: Hey, just before we go, a reminder about Oliver White. We provide detailed knowledge of best practices, show you how to implement them, coach you on ways to manage challenges, and mentor you to build competencies. After working with Oliver White, your company will be more competitive, responsive, and profitable. We don't just tell you how to improve your business processes. We give you the knowledge to make it happen. Find Oliver White online at www.oliverwhite-americas.com or by calling 800-258-3862. I've been speaking with Michael Vaughn of the Regis Company. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.